Hi, I'm Jonathan from Chicago. Hi, I'm Kristen from San Francisco. I'm Evan from Silver Spring, Maryland. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Comedian and author Baratunde Thurston went to high school at Sidwell Friends. It's a private Quaker school in Washington, D.C. that Chelsea Clinton went to in the 90s and that President Obama's daughters go to now. It was really amazing in a lot of ways for Baratunde, but it was also really, really different from the inner city public school that he'd gone to up until then. This is a weird experience, and there was a... a a girl in my high school, she was a year older than me, and she was she was into chewing tobacco. It's <laughs> <laughs> like what what are you doing? Like and I've only seen this in movies. And maybe the Dukes of Hazard, John Wayne, I don't even it was just it was a foreign activity on like domestic soil. <laughs> I was like, what is that all about? And how do you how do you find that? Where do you buy that? Who taught you that? Why are you? Do you have a lot of free time where you're just picking up eccentric bad habits? Uh, why can't you just smoke or do weed like normal people? Why do you have to get into chewing tobacco? And that was, you know, that was her available indulgence uh, and vice. It's Bullseye. <laughs> On the show this week, Baratunde Thurston talks about how to be black, whether it's in high school, at Sidwell Friends, in college, at Harvard, or while working at The Onion. His satirical self-help book slash memoir is called, yes, that's right, How to Be Black. Plus, Chuck Bryant and Josh Clark, the hosts of the podcast Stuff You Should Know, introduce us to Lucha Libre, also known as Mexican Professional Wrestling. All that and more. It's Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week on this show, we are joined by one of our favorite culture critics for a couple of top picks. Things you might enjoy. This week, no different. Uh, we are joined by Mark Frauenfelder, the founder and editor of the seminal weblog boingboing.net and the podcaster behind Gweek. Mark, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Jesse. You're so sincere, Mark. Breath of fresh air. <laughs> Um, uh, let's talk about your picks. First of all, uh, this combination of hardware and software that is called the Zio Sleep Monitor. Um, this sort of stretches the bounds of what the kind of stuff we usually offer at the top of the show, but it seemed so neat that I wanted to include it. This is like some kind of sleep tracking device. Yeah, it is. I, I, uh, really value getting a good night's sleep because I just function so much better when I sleep well. And so what this thing is, you wear a, it's basically you wear a headband when you go to sleep at night. And on the headband is a little piece of electronics with a couple of electrosensitive pads that rest on your forehead. And it actually measures your, your brainwave patterns. You have different states of consciousness that are associated with different brainwave frequencies. And REM sleep has a distinctive brainwave signal. Uh, a light sleep does deep sleep, the waking mode. And so th those electromagnetic signals that your brain produces can be picked up by this little monitor that you're wearing in your 
on the headband and the signal is sent to a little clock that rests on your bed table and it's recording all these patterns while you sleep and then in the morning you just pull out the SD card from the clock and and plug it into your computer and it downloads the data and then you can see a graph that shows you how well you slept that night and it shows you exactly how many times you woke up at night how much REM sleep you had how much deep sleep you had how much light sleep you had it's fascinating to see how you slept that night and it charts it you know every day it adds more data it also gives you a sleep score based on on uh, its own algorithm and so I'm always trying to get like the highest score possible I'm kind of in competition with myself to see how high the score I can get and it gives you suggestions on how you can improve the score too by by trying different things so it it is just a, a really fun thing to do and it makes me want to go to bed really early which is a good thing because I used to tend to stay up too late and then wake up groggy the next day Mark if I'm not mistaken you're a married man right Yes. What does your wife think about this headband situation? <laughs> she she thinks that it would be too uncomfortable. She she doesn't really want to try it herself, but she's been experiencing some bouts of insomnia lately, so she's starting to ask a few questions about it. I, I have a feeling it would be so weird, but what if we had side-by-side Zio sleep monitor clocks on our bedside and we'd both be wearing these headbands? It, it might happen. <laughs> Do you feel like it's, it's you're, you're getting benefit from this thing? I do. I do because if you can track something, I feel like you can then experiment to see how it affects your sleep. If, if you can't measure it, you don't really know how well you're doing other than, you know, oh, I, feel, I don't feel that good this morning. But if you can ha- attach a real number to it, just like when you stand on a scale as a rough guide to knowing how your diet's doing, having a number associated with your sleep let you try different things out. And I, it definitely has improved my sleep over time. Tell me a little bit about this website called Gurney Journey. I love this website. And and uh, James Gurney is just a terrific illustrator. He's kind of an old school style illustrator in the, in the vein of Norman Rockwell or Howard Pyle or uh, uh, Andrew Wyeth just this terrific book illustrator. He came out with a series of books called Dinotopia. And they're just beautiful, beautiful oil paintings of a society in which people and dinosaurs coexisted. And his blog called Gurney Journey is just a fantastic resource for artists and just people who appreciate art and aren't necessarily artists. He studies light and color, uh, uh, a couple of days ago, he posted a series of macro photographs of the human eye and talked about the, the, the shape and the colors and the reflection and how that, that uh, affects painting. He makes little models of the dinosaurs that he paints that are just gorgeous, and he uses those as his guides when he paints to you know, bounce light off them in different ways. He shows videos of when he goes to farms and sketches animals, and he shows how he sketches them. Uh, when Jehovah's Witnesses come over to his house, he tells them that they can talk to him as long as they allow him to sketch them while they while they talk, so that he gets free models while they're while they're there giving their <laughs> their uh, spiel. It's a fast, fascinating blog and beautiful pictures, and really great explanation about art. Mark Frauenfelder's picks this week: the Zio Sleep Monitor, which you can find online at myzio zeo. Dot com and Gurney Journey, 
which you can find at gurneyjourney.blogspot.com. That's G-U-R-N-E-Y, gurneyjourney.blogspot.com. Mark Frauenfelder, of course, the editor and founder of Boing Boing at boingboing.net and the host of the charming and wonderful Geek podcast, which is full of great geeky recommendations for culture, toys, uh, tools, all, all kinds of neat stuff. Thanks as always, Mark. Thanks so much, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Josh Clark and Chuck Bryant are the hosts of the podcast Stuff You Should Know, and they've joined us now to explain the heretofore believed to be unexplainable in the world of culture. Josh, Chuck, welcome to Bullseye. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having us, Jesse. I guess probably unexplainable is overstating the case. It's pretty explainable. (laughs) We understand it fully. What is the thing that we uh, may not know about that we should know about that we're going to know about within the next five minutes or so this week on the program? My friend, we are going to be talking about Lucha Libre, a.k.a. Mexican wrestling, a.k.a. awesomeness. So what is the difference between like the WWF uh, and American professional wrestling and uh, Mexican professional wrestling. So were, were you raised on WWF, like Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, and Hulk Hogan and all that? Andre the Giant was my favorite guy. Okay, so but that era. So you are almost fully versed in the, the what's behind Mexican wrestling. All you have to do is make the moves a lot more faster and like machine gun repetitive. And then add um, colorful masks. Oh, and um, do not speak English. So where did this where did this come from? What are the roots of uh, Mexican professional wrestling? Well, funny you should ask, Jesse. <laughs> it dates back to the 1930s, actually, and the uh, the originator, the godfather of the lucha libre, his name was Don Salvador Luteroth Gonzalez. And he formed the first Mexican wrestling league that is under a different name today, but it still thrives. The same league still thrives today. And uh, it's really all about the masks. He was inspired by American professional wrestling, which, as we understand it today, with all of the drama and the... Um, Chuck, what's that called where the uh, where you keep up the appearance of, like, reality? Uh, uh, kayfabe. Keeping up kayfabe. You know, like... The guy is acting like this other rival wrestler really did sleep with his wife, and his wife is really like with him now, and that's why he's fighting him. That's kayfabe, right? Um, and that was born out of the carnivals of the 1930s, roughly, in America. And the guy who created Mexican wrestling, um, Don Gonzalez, he um, saw some of these wrestling matches and was like, I'm putting some masks on these guys, and we're going to try this in Mexico. Chuck, do you want to tell them about mask matches and the significance of them? Well, yeah, you were saying how they keep up this ruse and stay in character. It's like they really stay in character. Like the the legendary, most legendary wrestler of all time, El Santo, uh, there's reportedly only one photograph of him in existence without the mask on. 
But after he retired, he went on this like um, daily talk show in Mexico. Oh, that's right. And he demasked himself. And then he died of a heart attack a week later and then was buried in his mask. Yeah, and fathers will pass on the identity sometimes to their sons in the mask. And uh, they take it very seriously as far as, as remain. And being unmasked actually is you can get disqualified for doing so, but can, it can also be your punishment as a loser and a great disgrace to be unmasked. Okay, so there are two other differences between uh, uh, American professional wrestling and the Lucha Libre, as I understand it. Um, and I want to take them each in turn. First, can you explain to me what exoticos are? Um, exoticos are openly gay Mexican wrestlers. And they have like really flamboyant personas. And they, um, uh, one, Cassandro is uh, pretty big right now. And he will wrestle wearing like a bathing suit and pantyhose and high heels. Um, and what the cool thing is, is like they, they're this uh, part of this long tradition of Lucha Libre. Um, and they are venerated technicos, the heroes, the good guys. There are rudos. Uh, but more often than not, they're like the uh, celebrated heroes. And um, that's definitely something you're not going to find in American pro wrestling. That sounds really awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You should look up Exoticos. They have, like, the best costumes, I think. Well, and they've changed over the years. Some of them were originally straight wrestlers pretending to be gay wrestlers, but Cassandro and others have definitely opened the door for legit gay wrestlers. What about minis? Basically, they're miniature versions of the larger wrestlers. So um, what in America you would very, very inappropriately call midget wrestling. Um, th this is a little different. Like, you don't have to legally be a little person to uh, wrestle as a lucha, uh, mini luchador. Um, you can just be short. You can be a DeVito. Exactly. Uh, but then uh, very often they'll be adopted as, like, mascots, especially when they're wrestling with, like, the, the larger-sized version of that luchador. It's sort of like a Tupperware set. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not at all offensive, I'm told. Oh no, they're like uh I mean they're they're taken very seriously and they it's not in, intended to poke fun at um, you know, their smaller stature or anything like that. So, uh there was this Hollywood movie about Lucha Libre, which was uh Nacho Libre, the uh Jack Black movie, um directed by uh Jared Hess, am I remembering that correctly? That is correct. Yep. In the movie, uh, Jack Black's character uh, fights for the rights of an orphanage as a luchador. Uh, is that sort of is that sort of the kind of thing that uh, luchadores are up to? Uh, not only that, Jesse, but that was actually based on a true story. Oh no. wow! Was it, it? It was. It was based on a real guy. And Jack it, Black course, is a real Mexican wrestler. <laughs> yeah. the the seed of the movie was based on a real guy but uh, i think they took some uh liberties there obviously well josh chuck thank you so much for joining me on bullseye and explaining the world of lucha libre thank you jesse thank you for having us jesse chuck bryant and josh clark are the hosts of the stuff you should know podcast you can find it in itunes and online at howstuffworks.com after a break, comedian and writer Baratunde Thurston will talk about his book, How to Be Black, at the office, at work. I mean, it can be tricky. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI.
Public Radio International. Hey gang, Jesse here. One of our favorite times of the year is the annual Max Fun Drive. It's when we get to hear from all of the people like you who listen to our shows. And by hear from, I mean collect money from. This year's Max Fun Drive is coming up March 26th, so keep it locked right here to all your favorite MaximumFun.org shows. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at PutThisOn.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Baratunde Thurston, is the director of digital at The Onion. His new book, How to Be Black, is a combination memoir and instructional manual for the black person in America, 2012. It's a rejection of the idea of a post-racial America. He presents not just his own story, which is a really compelling one, but also a panel of fellow African-Americans in young adulthood with perspectives on how to, among other things, be the black guy at your workplace, the black person at your school, and uh, how to handle other important African-American roles in American society. Baratunde, it's, it's great to have you back on the show. Thank you. It's good to be here, Jesse. First of all, I, I want to start with the fact that you were thoughtful enough to counter your role as a black representative to white America mm-hmm. by including a panel yes. Uh, yes. in this book. I thought that was very, that was very thoughtful of you. Um, are you, do you feel like you are often asked to be, uh, the black guy as a guy, especially, you know, you're one of these people who is constantly going to conferences. Yeah. I'm a conference whore. Um, are, are you often the black guy? I have been, uh, playing this role of the black guy in many parts of my life. I was first introduced to it, uh, and it's in my teen years when I went to a private school in DC, Sidwell Friends School. And you'd have these moments in class where like anything black comes up. And everybody just sort of looks at you, and there's a moment of silence as they wait for you to expound profoundly on your entire people's history and just sort of <laughs> explain it to them. <laughs> and so they wait, and they wait, and you're like, hey, I'm 13. I don't know it all yet. Give me like a decade. I'll get a little bit better at it. So that's where it began for me was in a, an awkward classroom environment. And now, you know, depending on the scarcity or supply or surplus of blackness within a certain sphere – Digital web stuff, a little lighter in some cases, media stuff all over the map, certain parts of the comedy world, right? It just, it kind of depends. I can be more or less the default uh, black ambassador, black ambassador. Are there upsides to that? Like, do you, oh, do you yeah. ever, what are the upsides? Well, so I think the first thing that comes to mind is the ability to highly miseducate people <laughs> and just abuse your position uh, and the ignorance of your intended community and audience. And I got this idea. It wasn't even mine, but I was talking to a friend of mine after the book about this black employee role. And part of your duties as the black employee is to kind of be like the cool person in the office. So you're just supposed to know stuff, supposed to know about the secret clubs and the places to eat and what's going on with Jay-Z exactly right now. And so my friend who had a rural background went to New York City, got a corporate job, and everybody assumed that like he's plugged into the hot club scene in New York. It's like, oh, so what's, what's going on? Where should we be? Where should we get on a list? And he doesn't know. But instead of admitting his ignorance, he just plants misinformation. He just started making up one-syllable sounding words. I heard, uh, I heard gruff is pretty hot. 
right now like oh, okay gruff any, anything else yeah what about uh, zang i think zang <laughs> uh it's like it's a really new underground club and then when they looked for the clubs and couldn't find them he thought oh, i'll definitely be found out here as a fraud no it increased his cool street cred he's like oh he knows clubs that we can't even find this is the coolest black dude ever so that's definitely an advantage you went to uh, the Sidwell Friends School, yes. which is a private Quaker school right? Um, in Washington, D.C. There's one of the uh, most renowned private schools in the country. Yeah. yeah. Uh, w- describe what this place I- I- is for people that maybe have only vaguely heard of it because like Chelsea Clinton went there. Sidwell is a and was... And it it's become, like a left-wing Andover, right? It, is, it definitely leans left. I mean, qu- most Quaker schools do. Quakers are pacifists. Quakers are abolitionists. Quakers are community service-oriented. They believe God is in everyone. So there's a lot of progressivism. And the education I got was good. For me, there, was, there were a lot of shocks to my system going to Sidwell from my neighborhood school. There were uh, white people <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> Just everywhere you open boom, up, boom, 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 coming out of every doorway and <laughs> out a window. Like there's a lookout. <laughs> so that was a new experience, especially DC being a black city. Me growing up in the black and brown neighborhood, I just wasn't used to that large volume of, of white bodies and voices in my life and names. So that was different. And then it was a private school. So with all that entails, class sizes and resources and weirdo sports that I'd never heard of, like lacrosse. And field hockey. I remember doing ultimate frisbee for the yeah. first time when I went to private school. Yeah. It's a, that, that's different. I was like, what frisbee? Ultimate. The most frisbee. <laughs> you would have an ultimate frisbee, rich kid. Not, not, you would not have a little bit of frisbee. frisbee. Ultimate frisbee. It's the last stop on the frisbee train. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then money. Right? Money was different. You know, people who had it was, was a relatively new experience. And visiting friends' houses. And they've got magnificent homes not everybody but a lot of kids or have cars or you know seeing what their parents do so that was some of the experience was just adjusting to all those new variables and also to the racial dynamic which you know being in this new neighborhood in the city for me around more white people than i was used to playing these things that we've talked about a little you know being the representative of blackness or dealing with the little microcosm of american politics in a school like all these things that play out on college campuses or play out in a larger society also have a little bit of a home in a place like Sidwell. What I realized then, and this is where the school stands apart for me, despite all the drama I went through there, they listen to students way more than most schools do. So we had situations with all kinds of racist things going on on campus, whether it's in from a teacher or from a parent group or from just the general institution or a specific kid. So we did a play about racism at Sidwell. And you ended racism. And and we did not end racism, but they gave us the stage for like a whole assembly. And then they gave us the rest of the morning and we ran these workshops. We ran these like little breakout sessions and we had facilitators and we talked about like, well, why is this happening in the classroom? Why are you always expecting black kids to do this? And what was this remark all about? In most schools, they just wouldn't care. And in D.C. at the time, this was the 80s, which was a very rough time for a lot of D.C., uh, which has gone through its own transitions. Can we put, okay, let's put fancy private school on hold for let's a second. Because let's talk about cities in the 80s. Yeah. Because I think that, um, I, I also grew up in a city in the 80s. Okay. And What city was that? Uh, that was San Francisco. I grew up in the Mission District of San Francisco yeah. in the 80s. And I think that, um, I don't know, when I tell people about different stuff, 
that happened. Like, I don't think, um, you know, I don't think I was ever in danger of becoming a wayward youth. Okay. Like, I think there was always the expectation, the very reasonable expectation that I would grow up and go to college and be mm-hmm. a success. You know, both my parents went to college. Yeah. Et cetera. But I did live in the inner city. And it can be very difficult to kind of convey what that was like. And also to convey, I know in, in my experience, it's been difficult to convey the idea that when you live in a place like that, mm-hmm. it is possible to like live there and you're like scared that you're going to get jumped or like that there's shootings and stuff. Uh, but also it is possible to live there and think that you're like going to go to college or to like do well in school yeah. or <laughs> no, it's, it's possible to, to live a normal life and like a normal path and still do your stuff. I actually, I put this in, in my own podcast, which pales in comparison to yours, but I put, uh, I'm doing this diary of the book tour and kind of, of my life now that all this stuff is happening. And I met John Legend last week, the, the musician, a soul musician, and he and I have similar backgrounds. And I asked him one of the questions a lot of people ask me, which is like, how did you make it? Like, why did you make it? And why didn't your siblings or the, your neighbors make it? Because he said, you know, he had, some of his friends were drug dealers. And I was like, so why weren't you? And part of it was, in both of our cases, this was an overlap, they knew not to try to suck him into that. They're like, no, no, you're way on a different path. And it wasn't just like this stark, har- it was a harsh world, but it wasn't as harsh as it can be portrayed, which is even the people involved in that game were like, no, John, not you, John. Like, you got to go and do something. You're, you're all into those books. You wear glasses and you're not great at basketball, whatever the thing is, like, let's kind of put a bubble around this kid and let him do his thing. And that's another way that it, you, you can still live in that neighborhood and also have opportunity and go to college and, and be you without too much stress. There's still stress. There's still people going to call you names. And, but there's also this other window that, you know, I, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about that story. And that was my experience, too. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Baratunde Thurston. He's the director of digital at the satirical newspaper, The Onion. And his new book is part memoir and part faux self-help guide. It's called How to Be Black. I was wondering as I, as I read the book uh, about the part of your experience that was defined by the fact that it was Washington, D.C. Mm. I've, sp- I've spent a lot of time in D.C. because my mom's actually originally from D.C., and I wondered whether the fact that D.C., especially then, less so now, was uh, essentially a black city, yeah. um, meant in part that you know your identity didn't have to be defined exclusively by your blackness, that your mom could be a granola hippie <laughs> black lady yeah. and still live in the hood. I don't, you know, I haven't thought about it too much. That's a that's a good point, and I guess for me being in a black city from the beginning and in a black and Latino neighborhood from the beginning gave me a certain foundation and grounding and pride and comfort that I was then safe for export right? <laughs> and, and could still maintain the integrity of self and pride. And I guess just confidence. Like, okay, this is who I am without having that shaken too much. Once, once I was in the private school world or the private college world and my mother she grew up in a different D.C., in the 1940s in D.C., and she was in gangs when she was a kid, and she had combated with her mother throughout her adult life. And she, her rebellion politically was in part a rebellion against the more conservative tendencies of her own mother, 
which was very much not at all black pride. Like dark skin was bad. Africa was bad in a dark, weird place of heathens and unchristian values. And my mom was like, wait, maybe not. <laughs> and so she starts changing up who she hangs out with. And so I think she earned a lot of her own sense of self and credibility. Uh, she said, yeah, I was in the streets for this. Now I'm going to go camping. <laughs> like what? I don't think there was ever any substantive issue from what I remember. And I was very young of people like challenging her. They just thought she was a little weird. But not that she wasn't black or she wasn't like a good mom. They were just like, wow, you are really, you're really going to go camping? You, <laughs> okay. Because even parents who would do that, they wouldn't like go with, you know, they would like, okay, go with your older sister or something and go bike. But my mom would like get on the bike and bike 20 miles with us and like be in it as a part of the thing. And that was also in hindsight, a really great example of her kind of fully investing, not just with her decisions, but with her time and her body. Like, yeah, we're going to do, we're going to the, we're going to the beach, we're going camping, we're going to the co-op, we're going to buy some organic carob donuts and rice cakes. We're doing this. Yeah. Carob is gross, right? I, um, I don't believe in it. It's super gross. As I mentioned this in this, you know, there are these seminal moments in a child's life, right? Like I remember being told that my father was dead. I remember graduating from elementary school. I remember my first kiss. And I remember the first time I saw something called carob-covered donut. And it disgusted me because it's not chocolate. And there's nothing wrong. Just eat the chocolate. Chocolate is wonderful. What are you doing? It's not even that bad for you. <laughs> Just don't eat too much of it. It's moderation and everything, right? That's, that's the lesson. Oh, so, carob tastes bad. It's not cool. It doesn't taste like chocolate. And it does not taste even, it doesn't even taste good. It's a solution in search of a problem. Oh, carob is nasty. <laughs> Baratunde, I cannot eat chocolate because I, it is a migraine headache trigger for me. Ah, I'm sorry. I'll have yours. But I do not mess with carob because yeah. it's nasty. Good. It tastes gross. Good. Good. We can start a political party around this. I'm with you. I'm with let's you. Let's do to, this To thing. the end. To let's the end. Let's make this. Let's make some signs. Whatever it takes. We'll start a hashtag. Carob sucks. Yeah, social media that's how you want to do it i want to take this to the streets we can take it to all of those places at the same time that you were going to this school uh, you were going to this weekend school that you describe as being kind of like a black militant version of hebrew school yeah we studied the black torah it was, uh, it was exactly <laughs> like and we, this, we wore you know fezes instead of uh, yarmulkes this is amazing to me all i can picture mm-hmm. in this honestly i'm yeah. just going to be totally real with you as i was reading this i was picturing the video for the dead prez song they schools where it's basically just a bunch of kids doing push-ups and practicing karate and then like a teacher pointing to a map of Africa <laughs> and everyone's wearing red, black, and green. That's, uh, that's not too far. Uh-huh. That's not too far from the experience. So here's... It's, it's like that, but with more cross colors. More people w- are wearing cross way colors. Way more cross colors, uh, way more maps. Uh-huh. Way more detail to the maps. So I found this... And so there are a number... You know, education is always... As people try to solve America's racial problem, they look at every institution. There's healthcare, there's police, there's government, there's employment, there's education. And so when they education tip, they're like, okay, maybe part of the problem is the school system isn't teaching us to, you know, the appropriate history, the complete story, the amount of pride and respect. And if we can switch that variable and tweak that knob a little bit, we can create people and citizens who have a, a stronger sense of self-worth. So we create Afrocentric schools. And, and that's still... 
exist to some degree, but it was a very popular wave, like you said, in the, in the 80s. Because Malcolm you had, X baseball cap. Period. Yeah, you, you, you have you know, Poor Righteous Teachers, Brand New, like the hip-hop expression of this. There's an education movement expression of this. And you look at the people who are driving it, and they are looking for the next phase of the civil rights movement. And there was an expression of the civil rights movement, which is very more aggressively pro-black and about the pride thing and about black nationalism. So this, this is that subset of, of the you know, super integrationist component of civil rights, and this was a little bit different. So these folks created school, and within that, you also have the pressures of the 80s with the neighborhoods we're both talking about, the, the time period we both grew up in, and all these dangerous distractions. How do we save these kids from the, the criminal justice system and from the cops and from crack? So we occupy them. We fill their days with as much positive activity as possible. So this was a Saturday school sort of program. There was a physical component, which is all about, and the goal is to create, you know, proud black men and black women. There was a path for girls and there's a path for boys. And so there's a big physical component. There was also, we should explain, there was a sort of like Robert Bly part of this. There was like a coming of age pseudo-religious part too, right? There was, uh, I don't know how much of the, there was a, religion and culture have a, you know, there's a dance there. I never felt actual religious pressures. And I had been baptized Catholic. I was going to an Episcopal church, and there was never any challenge on that sense of like, oh, you're doing religion wrong. But there was a, a, an homage to elements of West African culture and religion. Sure. You know, a griot Mahatma would God. pop in from time to and there, time. And there was a lot more drumming. You know, <laughs> so, there, so you had the physical component, just get your, get your body fit to be able to get your mind fit. Get your body right to get your mind right. Then you have like the cultural stuff. These are some terms. These are some languages. These are some belief systems. These are new texts to read. These are you know, dances and drumming and the importance of the drum and the history of pre-slavery and slavery and post and communications. So we're living that out. And then there's the, the pure mental, which is like, this is what you need to know. And so we're reading a lot of Marcus Garvey. We're reading Malcolm X. We're reading what called the ISIS papers. We're reading all sorts of things that would – some small slice of that is prescribed in a school like Sidwell, but not to this extent. Um, and then there's also like carpentry classes and that was firearms training. Cause like, you're probably going to come across a gun. You should know how to handle it. And, and that's a very reasonable, sane position in an insane world. So it was a lot to take in. It was like a, a super immersive HD blackity black experience that was, you know, balanced by lacrosse and field hockey. Well, and, I mean, it uh, seems like sack. you also, you get something that, you know, assures you at a very unconfident time in your life that just because you're going to fancy private school, you have something that you can point to for yourself, yeah. even even if it's not externally that says like, just because I'm going to fancy private school doesn't mean I'm Oreo or I want to be white or whatever. It, it was a grounding. I can be like, look, I owe this. I, look at this Africa medallion that I'm literally required to wear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at you know, every day. It's every day was like a, that was the fraternity. A list of, of the people who are required to wear those are number one, people who are in the stage crew of the poor righteous teachers, <laughs> and number two, the members of this program. Yeah, yeah, it was a very niche requirement. <laughs> but it is. I mean, it's like it's something that you can that you can have as sort of a base yeah. for when you go into this world, so that you don't need to worry about what your place is. You can feel like, well, no, I know that I am. I know that I am who I am. And, and when you think about, you know, confidence is a big element of what I've learned through my life, through, you know, in the story of this book, it's inferred more than explicitly stated. But it's something that 
some people have just as their nature. It's something that's granted as a part of your family, as a part of knowing your history. Like, oh yeah, my, my mom did this, we're from here. We, go, we can trace ourselves back to this Scottish village or what have you, or just because of uh, you know, how long you've been immersed in that society. Sidwell was such a foreign place that there can be a risk that the lack of confidence really starts to affect your performance. And people are going to check you and challenge you because they're teenagers and they can be unkind, sometimes intentionally, sometimes. Is that so? I have, I've, read, teens. I've read about it. I've read about teenagers not necessarily being the best people right. in the world. Hmm. So <laughs> had one or two experiences of that myself. Hmm. Mostly it's through literature. So, yeah, so but they're it, so live. They, they are. They hmm. are. They wouldn't they get such luminous hair. <laughs> so, yeah, so in that environment, you know, having something to bolster and, and hold to, I, I think, is, uh, is of great value. It's like a talisman. It's a, it's a magic talisman of blackness. After a break, Baratunde Thurston will talk about finding the perfect university to attend after graduating from the Lily White Quaker School, Sidwell Friends. What I understood that I wanted from college was black people. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he ended up at uh, Harvard? It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Bullseye is proud to be a co-sponsor of the fourth annual Women in Comedy Festival. Over 200 of the best and brightest female comedians from around the country will perform in over 50 sketch, stand-up, and improv shows. The shows take place at venues all over Boston, Massachusetts, from March 21st to March 25th. For performers, show, and workshop information, visit womenincomedyfestival.com. Hey everybody, Jesse here. MaximumFun.org is offering a comprehensive events internship this year. MaxFunCon has been a huge success, and now we're developing new events, spoiler alert, to be held throughout the year. You'll work at our office here in Northeast Los Angeles two days a week. You'll help plan and coordinate our upcoming events, including MaxFunCon. Anyone can apply, but we especially like folks who do the internship for college credit. The application deadline is March 23rd. For more information, just email nick at MaximumFun.org. That's nick, N-I-C-K, at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Baratunde Thurston. He's the director of digital at the satirical newspaper The Onion. He's also the author of How to Be Black. It's part memoir and part slightly jokey, slightly not jokey guide to being black in America in 2012. When it came time for you to uh, uh, apply to colleges, Mm -hmm. were you like, did you have an idea of what you wanted to get out of college? Like what kind of college thing you wanted to have? It's a weird thing, especially, I don't know. I, when I was applying to colleges, I, the thing that I learned the most the thing that I think of the most when I look back on it is just, I just didn't know anything about any colleges or what college was like at all and had no basis to make any kind of decision. Yeah. I, I had a light basis. My, I have an older sister and she went to college and I remember driving her up and dropping her off. She went to Carnegie Mellon. I remember some of her reports from the front and her amazement that some of her roommates and dorm mates didn't know how to do their own laundry. 
That was, <laughs> I remember being amazed at that too. That was a huge, and she's just like, what? I mean, my mom made my sister work like at a job and contribute rent to the house. You know, like she worked at B Dalton books. She worked at KFC. She worked all kinds of jobs and she forked over some of her earnings to the family. And we, I, I've been doing my own laundry since I was eight at the latest. So yeah, my sister had reported some of that back. What I understood that I wanted from college was black people. Right? <laughs> I was, I like, I'd been, I'd done the Sidwell thing. I was like, I get it. You kind of wanted to exhale. Yeah, I was waiting, waiting to do that. And I, I because like, when you I, are, I did my time. When you have this experience with this amazing school, but yeah. where when there's racism, you have to lead a seminar about it. <laughs> right. You do a play and lead a seminar about it. I can understand why you might want to go somewhere where everybody else is black. Just a little less over. So maybe the white people have to lead the seminar. Yeah. And, and I could learn from them. Yeah. So I was looking at Morehouse and I had, I know I knew academically I loved math and science. I loved gadgets. I loved computers. You can just say you were a nerd. I was, I was a nerd. Mm-hmm. I was, I was, I was a coolish nerd. So <laughs> I, uh, I loved all that stuff. I loved the internet early, very early. I like the next generation, not the original series. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was, that's what my initial focus was. I do remember a college fair when it I came like to I like Deep school. Space Nine. There's more character conflict. I wasn't really into DS9. Yeah. So, uh, but I did like Voyager for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. You are cool. <laughs> very cool. Cold as ice. Yes. But mostly I was like, let me go to the Atlanta area. Let me go to Morehouse. Let me be super black and get an engineering degree and make robots <laughs> and buildings and bridges and spaceships. That's probably what I wanted to end up doing. And my path was affected by an older friend of mine who was biracial and thus black in so many checklists. And he had been at Harvard. And he said, you got to check it out. I was like, okay, fine. I don't want to. I really can't ignore when he says something because he's really smart and like wise to me. And I'm a young person looking up at this upperclassman. So I visited and he was right. So I went and what ended up happening, all that investment at Sidwell, all that seminar teaching and extra duties, I got returns on that at Harvard because I didn't feel like I had to do that again. I was like, okay, I don't have to go to an all black environment to still feel a sense of escape from the burden of this high school experience. I can just move on and go to the next step in my own evolution, which is, okay, let's milk this resource. Let's be this. Let's experiment with all kinds of opportunities and activities and and kind of just figure out who I am and what I want to do with myself. So I ended up having that because of boot camp, which was Sidwell, and because of the vest I was wearing, which was Uncle Bia, the the talisman. Yeah. So my college friends are... um great uh one of my best friends from college still works with me today on my comedy podcast jordan jesse go and um i you know i have lots of brilliant uh amazing college buddies yeah um but you know i, I went to uc santa cruz like a lot of people that i went to college with like you know they like work at the natural food store for example mm-hmm. or like um semi-professional hacky sack players <laughs> If you go to Harvard, like every person that you know went to Harvard. <laughs> every uh, single college friend of yours went to Harvard. When you Even put- the people that you know that dropped out of college, they go around like, yeah, I dropped out of Harvard. 
<laughs> I uh, I hadn't quite thought about it that everyone I went to college with went to Harvard. You've thought about that. <laughs> that's, that's, you that's baloney. No, You've when, thought about that. When I think about I think about it in a couple of ways. Within the Harvard experience, there's a typical outcome of like, okay, I went to Harvard, so I'm an investment banker. I'm a consultant. I'm a medical professional. I'm a lawyer. There are like some very high volume standard paths that suck people from Harvard into their world. You know, the hedge fund world is populated by a lot of Harvard people and Yale people and other Ivy League people. And so to do something like what I'm doing, comedy and writing, it's more rare. Right, it's much, much more rare versus. Although the you say that, but the entire comedy writing world is is dominated by Harvard graduates. Uh, that I can't, I can't say that's not true. But I would also say that <laughs> that's a tiny world. More than any, more than any other world of, more than any other. There's no other feeder relative to that that compares to Harvard in the world of comedy. Hmm. Give me some charts on that one. Okay. Some charts on that one. I mean, maybe, my, maybe that one improv thing <laughs> where, where you do improv shows in Amsterdam. What's that thing called? Boom, Boom Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. yeah, so it's like Harvard and the improv <laughs> thing in Amsterdam are the two things that seem to feed the entire comedy industry. And, then, and, the, well, and even the improv stuff out of Chicago. Yeah. Cause I know, cause, and I rem- actually, here's what I remember experiencing when I went to the Onion. And everybody assumed that the Onion's like this Harvard thing. It's like... It's the farthest from a Harvard right. thing. Well, it's all. a Madison, Wisconsin thing. Yeah, like I was a rarity, you know, with being an Ivy League person uh, there at, at that time. So, yeah, all my all my roommates uh, went to Harvard. <laughs> I guess that's that's true. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian and author Baratunde Thurston. His new book is called How to Be Black. My like my college roommate Mike. Yeah, wonderful guy, Mike. Mike works at a um one of these uh homes for um like severely emotionally disabled teens okay and so it's his job when the teens are he has a deep well of compassion in his heart and he's also very muscly he's like five foot six inch muscly filipino dude Mm -hmm. he's built like sort of like two henry rollins in one in front of the other and he's, so a Henry Rollins sandwich, yeah, double and Henry. He can sort of he, he can mu- muscle the teens, and um, like my other friend who works for PG and E from college. But like your friend, like he's like president of my what, my friend tanked the Icelandic economy. <laughs> so I guess you know here or there. You graduate <laughs> when you graduated from Harvard. Yeah. You had one of those jobs that a person that graduates from Harvard has. <laughs> I did. Um, what was it that you and you had that job for a relative? It's not like you had that job for eighteen months, right? You had that job for years. Yeah. Um, after you graduated from school, what was it that changed that led you to a become a stand-up comedian, b become a political blogger? And see, eventually become a writer with the Onion. For me, that job was educational, and that I was learning all kinds of stuff I knew nothing about business. Right? <laughs> Didn't really know anything about it. I was having a little hacky entrepreneurial gigs that I, I just sold things myself. Like I sold water guns. I ran guns in high school. Uh, I sold verb conjugation tables. Like I had this entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> just trying to monetize my brain in some way. I want to scale that to a larger operation. Let me learn from these other businesses. 
So I did this work for a while. And I'd say I did it full time for four years and then part time for another four years. So there's some component of the eight years of my life tied up in this. It's, it wasn't my passion. And, and I, I have this sense, especially given everything we've talked about, my mom, my neighborhood, the Uncle Bia thing, there's been a ton invested in me. And I just didn't think it was to like help Verizon's profit margins. I could, be, I could be really good at that, but there's probably more to offer than that. But some people would be in your position yeah. and think that there has been a ton invested in me and it wasn't so that I could go off and be a comedy writer. Yeah, and then that's why we have individual free will because <laughs> we can all make our own calculations of value. So for me, it was maybe not. I'm going to learn here, but also missed the whole artistic side. And as a parallel plot line in my life, I've always been on stage. As a kid, I was in the youth orchestra program. I did plays and musicals. I, in, in high school, I did plays and musicals. In college, I did plays and musicals. I did the whole summer just doing theater while I was at Harvard. And I wrote on the newspaper and I had my own comedy newsletter in college and I got pretty good at it for a totally unguided experience new on the web. And I missed all that. And there was some gap in your own personal sense of satisfaction that the consultant thing just did not scratch. There was an itch that uh, I jumped around on the metaphor train there, but you know what I mean? Like I needed something more. And so what happened we went on a metaphor adventure. I did, but we're back. Mm -hmm. We're back in the, in the line of plain talk. My girlfriend at the time had a huge influence over this path. We had this conversation. I used to flex my feathers in the mating dance that we do by showing her all this funny stuff I did back in college. Check out this piece. Check out that piece. Look at this thing I wrote in the newspaper. Look at blah, 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 blah. But I wasn't doing it anymore. And that's where she came in and she sort of challenged me. She was a musician. She was pursuing her artistic dream. She was pulling the Tracy Chapman thing, playing guitar in Harvard Square and putting her case out with coin and cash in it. And she basically said, why aren't you doing this whole other thing, which you clearly love and are clearly good at? And I was like, well, I'm going to pay off these loans with this corporate gig and I'll come back to it. And she called me on that and she said, look, you're, you'll probably never come back to it. Because you're going to get addicted to the money thing. You're going to bankrupt Iceland. It's going to make you feel like a big man on campus. You go to the next country and raid their treasury in the name of privatization. Whatever, right? I threw a lot in that. but Or you know, you'll keep redefining financial success to the point where you forget about the artistic thing you love. Or you will come back. You'll be more disciplined than I've painted. But you'll suck. <laughs> you'll suck at comedy. You won't have written for 5, 10, 15 years. You won't be on stage. So why are you waiting? And so I got off the phone. This was a phone call. We had a very important, maybe one of the most important phone calls in my life. And I got off the phone. I said, this person clearly cares about me and you know, values what I say I value, but I'm not actually living. Let me get back on that train. And so I started writing again, even as I was still doing the consulting work. But it was with a different sense of purpose. It was like, okay, I'm going to use this to pay off my loans and to buy my freedom right? in parallel, my creative freedom. Help me avoid the full starving artist path. But I also, with every trip I took as a consultant, I did an open mic in that town. And I used the money to buy my websites and domains and, uh, and print my first book. I did a self-published book in 04 using Verizon money or using some private equity guys, whoever's writing the check that month. It was an enabler of the creative instead of a delayer of it. 
the people at the Onion that I have met, um, and I'm the, uh, the couple of people that I know have been around the Onion for ever. Yeah, like since practically since the pizza coupon delivery right, right. mode days, are some of the nicest people I've ever met in comedy. Um, and the Onion, you know, fifteen years in or h- however long it's been now, twenty three. 23 years in, I'm older than, yeah, well, I'm pretty old now. <laughs> um, uh, are, it continues to be absolutely brilliant. And, you know, not everyone in comedy is always super, super nice like mm-hmm. they are. Um, I will also say about the people that run this, you know, this is an operation that was born in Madison, Wisconsin, moved to Chicago before it went to New York um, uh, about 10 years ago. Um, that These are some of the whitest people I've ever known in my life. <laughs> Like really, really <laughs> white people, super white people. And I don't say that like as a negative judgment mm-hmm. at all. Just as a statement. I'm fact. a white man myself. Yeah. I'm, you, you I'm would wearing know. a tweed suit right now. You're an expert in a certain type of whiteness. Yeah. yeah. So um, I just want you to talk about that for a second. <laughs> that since, was a, what a great since, half question. Since workplace so, blackness is an issue in this book. Talk about workplace whiteness. Well, yeah. Well, just because that is a white ass joint. It, it is. Uh, in my personal experience. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in mine as well. Okay. So. I figured if I said it, then I wouldn't be putting you in a position. <laughs> I didn't want to go say like, hey, how white is it at the onion? Yeah, the onion is so white. How white is it? And I also didn't no. want anyone to think that I was being mean about it because they're so great. The no. people that I know from the onion are some of the most wonderful people I've ever had the pleasure yeah. of meeting in, in yeah. comedy. It's been great. And I'm not saying that as like a weird diplomatic or covering thing. I am the black person in many of the photos of black people <laughs> at the onion. I am most, I am most black people <laughs> from 2007 to 2012. Uh, I've been the president. I've been the president's hand. I've been the mayor of Detroit. <laughs> I have been all three Supremes in the same shot. Photoshop is a lovely, lovely gift. Uh, and so in that sense, I feel like I've contributed. I remember actually meeting, there was a designer who used to work at The Onion, and he worked on the, the previous book we did, Our Dumb World. And we had this sort of passing the torch silent ceremony, because as I joined, he was just leaving. And he's like, you're the, you're the black guy now. <laughs> I was like, okay, tell me everything I need to know. So what I've been really impressed with, because that, that could cut a whole bunch of different ways in the type of material that The Onion does, they write about race so well in my as an outsider and now especially as an insider and so when i joined in people should understand the context i am not an onion writer as a full-time gig i have written pieces for the onion i've written several headlines my primary job when i joined was to orchestrate and plan all of our election coverage i was an editor and a producer and a contributor but not writer 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 all the time and then to figure out our whole digital life of the onion and adapt our comedy voice to these new platforms. And so be the funny guy who could understand tech, be the tech guy who could understand writing and all like that. So people have assumed, my friends especially, any story that has to do with like black people <laughs> or race, yo, you did a great job on that piece, Baritone. I'm like, why are you being so racist? <laughs> White people did that. Very smart, empathetic, and intelligent white people. 
like I, we need more white people like onion white people to help you know pass this torch of solving our nations and our and our world's problems baritone thank you so much for taking all this time to, to be on bullseye it was really a joy it was good to be in the bullseye baritone thurston's new book is called how to be black Every week on the show, we close with a suggestion from yours truly. It's the outshot. There's something wonderful about a TV adolescent who isn't a jerk. I know. Grown-ups write TV shows and teenagers hate grown-ups. So grown-ups think that the teenagers are bottomless wells of anger and confusion and meanness and darkness. And so that's how they write them for their TV shows. I can understand that. Then maybe the writers make... Uh, TV version of themselves who says something witty and withering to a bully. I get that too. What I love about Unsupervised, the new animated show on FX, is that it is the opposite of that. For 20 years, the television teenager has been world-weary and dreary. And look, I've got nothing against Daria or Darlene from Roseanne. It's just nice that the leads of Unsupervised, two 15-year-olds named Gary and Joel, have such verve, such joie de vivre. But believe it or not, dentistry is not exactly a turn-on to women. What? Hey, you listen to me. You did one of the most important jobs in the world. Without you, we wouldn't have no smiles. They're like real adolescents, liminal, you know, on the line between adult and child. They're surrounded by squalor and completely indifferent adults. Their lives are disaster areas. We want to party with you guys. You want to come over to my house tonight? Why would we want to hang out with you? Because you can drink and smoke all you want at my house. I ain't got no rules. Yes, yeah, like chaos there. They don't really know how to deal with girls, but they love dancing, especially doing spin moves. They love spin moves. And they're excited about pretty much everything. Yo, this dance is going to be awesome, dude. I didn't care before, but now I want to go more than anything in the world. It's probably going to be more romantic than anything we've ever experienced. It's a freaking night of a thousand lights. It's going to be beautiful. When I watch Unsupervised, I find myself thinking about how rare it is to see teenage boys on television treated kindly. These two guys love boobs and fire and video games, and they're dirt poor and go to a lousy public school and they have nits. They actually do have nits. But they're genuinely sweet. Inspirational, even. Seriously. I wish Gary and Joel were my friends. That's my outshot. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Julia Smith is our producer, Nick White, our editor. Our interns are Joe Molinelli and Justin Morissette. Our interview this week with Baratunde Thurston was edited by Colin Anderson in London, England. Our theme music, Huddle Formation, by the Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. You can email me if you have thoughts about the show, jesse at MaximumFun.org. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On. 
presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.